Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 119, 160. Psalm 119, 160. If you are a guest with us, uh, this is a special series that we're doing. It's called True from the Beginning, based on this verse. Normally, at Grace Baptist Church, we are preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, right now, we're taking a break. Uh, we are just getting ready to start Galatians chapter 3. We've made it through chapters 1 and 2 in about a year, I guess. And We just go verse by verse, word by word through the Bible because we believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so that's our normal uh, uh, method of teaching here, and I believe it's the only way to teach. Every fall, we take a break and we do a special study. And uh, a couple of years ago, we did Shaken, looking at current events. Last year, we did History That Matters. We looked at how did we get here on all different subjects. And uh, this year, true from the beginning, what do we believe about the Bible and what does the Bible say about itself? So Psalm 119, 160, look what the Bible says. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I'm thankful that it does endure forever. And that your word is true from the beginning. And Lord, we trust you. We rest in your word. Lord, help us. Lord, there's no way that I can cover everything that needs to be covered this morning. So Father, I pray that you'll help me to give the people, give your people, the information that they need to have an understanding of this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're looking at the subject of preservation. Preservation. Has God inspired His Word. I could have brought it in here this morning. I didn't. There's a famous book, and you may have seen it, Misquoting Jesus. Have you anyone seen the book, Misquoting Jesus, by Bart Ehrman? Uh, if you had gone to Barnes & Noble when that book was new, it was front and center at all of the major bookstores. He went on, John, on the John Stewart show. He went on the David Letterman show. And introducing this concept, his concept, to young people. The book sold more than 100,000 copies in its first printing, or in, in its first uh, several printings. A tremendously, uh, now just so you know, a New York Times bestseller, to make the bestseller list, you've got to sell about 5,000 books. This sold more than 100,000. So it's, it's a very important work. Bart Ehrman was raised in a fundamentalist church, he went to Moody Bible Institute. Anyone heard of Moody Bible Institute? And then he went to Wheaton College from Moody. Anyone heard of Wheaton College? And then he went to Princeton. He entered Moody as a fundamentalist. He left as an evangelical. He entered Wheaton as an evangelical. And he left. not believing in God's Word. He went to Princeton, and now he teaches, last I heard, he teaches at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and his whole purpose in life is to undermine young people's faith in the Word of God. Here's why. What happened to Bart Ehrman that would lead him to not only disbelieve God's Word, but to believe it's his mission in life to take that belief away from as many people as he can. Well, he was taught in Bible college 
that we don't have an exact copy of the Word of God as it was inspired. And in his book, I could bring it in and read it right from the pages of his book. He said this, If God can't preserve His Word, why should I believe He inspired it in the first place? You know what the sad thing is? He's right. He is exactly right. You see, if Jesus didn't, if, if Jesus spoke some words, but we don't have those words, then how do we know what Jesus actually said? Several years ago, there was a group called the Jesus Seminar. I think they may still be together. They were headed by a man named John Dominic Crossan. And Crossan was a man who hated the Word of God because he wanted to live a sodomite lifestyle. So he put this Jesus group together, this, this Jesus seminar together, for the purpose of voting on the Gospels to see how much of it was actually God's Word. And what they would do is they would sit around a table and they would read a portion of Scripture and they would vote with beads. And I can't remember if it was black for this is the Word of God and white for it's not the Word of God or not the words of Jesus, but however it was, they would read a text and then they would put a... a uh, what did I call it? A bead in the jar to vote. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. We're going to see in the Bible where that happened already. There's nothing new under the sun. But they, what they determined was that only, I think it was about 12% of what is in the Gospels were actually words of Christ. That's it. Now, either God preserved His Word or He didn't. We looked the first week at inspiration. Inspiration means that God inspired those very words. It didn't matter whether the men were inspired. It was His words that were inspired. And we find that all through the Scripture. It's easily demonstrated. If you weren't here for the first week, get the CD. It's out there. They're free. And listen to it. And you'll see from the Word of God that God inspired His words, not the men. But what we found last week was that when you look at the modern translations, there is a, a, a wide divergence in what they say. When you compare the King James Bible to the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, there, there are wild variations. How many of you have heard that the New American Standard Bible is the most accurate of the modern translations? That scholars say that the New American Standard Bible is the most accurate. But what they fail to tell you is that it was first introduced in 1961, 1963, updated various times through then, finally in 1977. Then they updated again in 1996. The difference between the, 1990, or the 1977 and the 1996, now listen, I know it's hard to just listen to numbers sometimes, but I want you to hear this. There were changes in more than 10,000 verses. 10,000 verses were changed. 24,300 words were changed. The 1996 New American Standard Bible had 6,996 fewer words than the 1977 New American Standard Bible. Now, the Bible says every word of God is pure. 
So that means that either those words were not pure in the 77, so they discovered that and removed them, or they have removed 6,996 pure words from the Bible. And I'm not sure which one it is. The problem is this concept of preservation. Has God preserved His Word? Has He preserved His Word? And of course, we believe that He has, and that's what we're going to look at today. Why is this an important subject? Well, if we're going to study preservation, let's look at what um, Noah Webster said in his 1828 dictionary about preservation. It's the act of preserving or keeping safe, the act of keeping from injury, destruction, or decay as the preservation of life or health, the preservation of buildings from fire or decay, the preservation of grain from insects, the preservation of fruit or plants. When a thing is kept entirely from decay or nearly in its original state, we say it is in a high state of preservation. So has the Word of God been kept from decay? Has it been kept from corruption? Has it been preserved? That's what we're going to look at today. Why is it an issue? Well, because conservative theological seminary professors cast doubt on preservation. Has anyone here ever heard of Dallas Theological Seminary? Anyone ever heard of Dallas Theological Seminary? I almost went there. I had, uh, I had a group of businessmen offer to send me there when I was young. And um, at different times in my life, I've wondered, should I have done this? Shouldn't I? And uh, I'm glad I didn't because I met Laura and got married, and it's awesome. Um, but listen to what he said. This is conservative seminary professor Daniel B. Wallace, THM, PhD, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's professor of New Testament studies, founder and president of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Among the books he has written are Greek Grammar, Beyond, Basic, Beyond the Basics, and Reinventing Jesus. So here's what he said about preservation. Uh, uh, let me set this up. 1516, Desiderius Erasmus had compiled a Greek text of the New Testament. Remember, I think it was around 1452, something like that, that uh, Gutenberg had invented the movable type printing press. Before that, everything had to be copied by hand. That's what manuscript means. That's something that's written by hand. And so that's the way that the Bible was copied. That's the way every book was written, by hand. Well, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, now it was possible to mass produce literature. By 1516, Erasmus had compiled his Greek text. It was printed. It had gone through three revisions by the time Martin Luther printed his uh, Bible in about 1525, his New Testament, in German. And he used Erasmus's text. Here's what Martin Luther said. There would have been no Reformation without Erasmus. That's how, that's how significant that text was. Very, very significant. Well, it went through certain revisions, went through uh, when it was printed by a man named Elzevir. Uh, in the introduction, they called it the Textus Receptus in Latin, the received text. So the text that underlies the King James Bible came to be known as the TR, Textus Receptus, or the received text. It was updated through Beza and Stephanus and others before it got to your King James Bible. Well, when the, that text came out and the King James Bible was translated, what happened was the Roman Catholics didn't like that. Now, how many of you remember, how many of you know that not only was there a Reformation, but there was also a Counter-Reformation? How many of you have heard of the Counter-Reformation? When I was in Rome, I went to St. Luke's Cathedral. St. Luke's Cathedral was um, built by the Jesuits 
and it was a counter-reformation cathedral. And in the artwork around its pictures of, of Jesuits um, inflicting torture on people who disagreed with the Reformation, trying to win them back to um, the Mother Church. And we don't teach that in our evangelism method, but that's, a, that's another story. Um, and I, got, I have to say this. I know that sometimes people get very uncomfortable when I make statements like that, when I mentioned the Counter-Reformation and what the pictures showed. Did I make a moral judgment when I described it? But how many of you heard a moral judgment? I hope you did. Are you supposed to torture people who don't believe what you believe? Are we supposed to do that? I'm sorry that it happened, but it is a point of history. And you can have your own opinions and preferences, but we cannot have our own facts. Facts are stubborn things. So what happened was, as a result of this Greek text that was being circulated, within 100 years it was translated into 1,200 vernacular languages, languages of the people. Within 100 years, that text. So if you want to know what the Reformation was about, this this Philadelphia period with the Bible going around the world, with, with, with people being saved and amazing missionary work being done, it's because people had Bibles. The entrance of thy word giveth light. When they didn't have Bibles, they didn't have light. Now they have Bibles and the world changed. Well, the way that the Catholics responded to that was they said that we, Baptists and Protestants, those who are Protestants and then those of us who are Baptists, it's not the same. Um, What they said was that we have a paper pope. And what they mean is that our authority, the, the authority in the church is the pope. When he speaks ex cathedra from the chair, that, that, is, that that's dogma, that's church law. When the College of Cardinals uh, gives a decree or the Pope releases what's called a papal bull, that this is the official position of Christendom, right? That's, that's history, that's, that's, and they would still consider that to be true. Well, those of us who would reject that kind of teaching because our authority is the Word of God, well, we were accused of having a paper Pope. So what happened was there was a man, and his name's not important to you, but what he did was he, his name was Hills, but anyway, what he, Mills, I mean, what he did, he was an Oxford scholar, and what he did was he examined all the manuscripts that he could find, and he found 30,000 variant readings in the text. Among the manuscripts, he found 30,000 differences. Now, how many of you would say that it is a problem? If you've got a couple of Bibles and they have 30,000 differences. How many of you would say that that's important? And so what happened was another scholar, a Protestant scholar, wanted to respond to him. And I believe Mills was a, was a Protestant also. Uh, he was an Oxford scholar. And at that period in history, I believe they were Protestant. Um, understand that when you have a state church, you were Catholic or Protestant depending on who the king was, the king or the queen. And I can't remember who was king or queen when Mills was teaching at Oxford. So I don't know if he was Catholic or Protestant. And that's, that's an, it's an interesting dynamic in history that, that, you, that was important to deal with. But anyway, he was responded to. And here's where this statement came from. Someone examined the exact uh, changes, the exact variant readings that this man had found. And he said that there, not one cardinal doctrine is influenced in these variant readings. How many of you have heard something similar to that statement? 
Well, that statement originated in response to Mills, okay? And so now this scholar, uh, Dan Wallace, is writing about that. He says this, In one sense, we might say that New Testament textual criticism, now what textual criticism is, that is examining the text and determining whether or not they're, they're true. In one sense, we might say that New Testament textual criticism was born as a polemic, that's an attack or a fight, against Protestants, intending to show that they couldn't really trust the Bible. But in 1707, an Oxford scholar named John Mill or Mills published a remarkable piece of work that had taken him 30 years to produce. It had a Greek text with more than 30,000 variants. He uncovered almost all of the major textual problems and a good number of the minor ones. By working through Greek manuscripts, ancient versions, and patristic writings, uh, he found these things. So now here's his conclusion. This is Wallace's conclusion. I personally would not state things so strongly as Bengal has, saying that none of the cardinal doctrines were affected. So he's saying, I would not personally, I would personally not state things as strongly as Bengal has. I would instead say that no cardinal doctrine is affected by any viable variant. The two qualifiers, cardinal and viable, seem to be more accurate uh, delimiters on what the data reveal. But frankly, it's very difficult to find any places where an actual article of faith, no matter how obscure, seems to depend upon a dubious variant. And again, I would not elevate my belief in some sort of preservation to doctrinal status. Now, I know it's hard. Normally, I'm jumping around, keeping your attention. I'll do that later. But listen to what just happened. Listen to what he just said. This, this is a profound statement. Listen to what he said. I don't believe, I would not elevate my belief in some sort of preservation to doctrinal status precisely because I don't believe the doctrine of preservation is taught in Scripture. Okay, so here's Dallas Theological Seminary professor. He is in charge of a New Testament manuscript study group. That's what he does. And he does not believe that preservation is taught in Scripture. How many of you would say, Houston, I think we have a problem. Right? Okay. We're, we're going to determine whether or not this is true. He says this. Um, the vast majority, he says, but I do believe that it can be demonstrated historically by an examination and sifting of the hundreds of thousands of textual variants that are known today. Now there are hundreds of thousands. There were 30,000 variants. Now there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants. The vast majority of textual variants are so trivial that they can't even be translated. And those that are significant and viable, that is, have some, plausible, some plausibility of containing the original wording, constitute less than 1% of all textual variants. Shucks! If I didn't know better, I might want to say that some divine providence was orchestrating such preservation. So he just said he doesn't believe that preservation is found in Scripture. He doesn't believe in some divine preservation of Scripture. That's his statement. He does not believe that preservation should be elevated to the point of doctrine. But it sure looks like God did something. Maybe. Okay. Um, conservative 
from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and that's a fundamentalist school, Edward W. Glennie. He said, the doctrine of preservation of Scripture was first included in a church creed in 1647. As we have argued above, it is not a doctrine that is explicitly taught in Scripture, nor is it the belief that God has perfectly and miraculously preserved every word. And I could read on, but the point is that what scholarship is teaching in the seminaries, we're not, Bart Ehrman said that if God couldn't preserve his word, why should I believe he inspired it? Well, we expect that from a liberal. Is that right? I think it was Chesterton, the Roman Catholic theologian, who said, an open mind is for the closing upon something solid. Otherwise, it becomes like the city sewer rejecting nothing. So in a liberal mindset where you're going to accept everything, then you could expect that from airmen. But now on the conservative side, the Dallas Theological Seminary, the Detroit Baptist Seminary, when they are teaching their young men that there is no such thing, that there is no doctrine of preservation taught in the Scriptures, now you know why there's so much confusion in the world. So now, what is our job today? Our job is, first of all, since we've established that there's a problem, how many would see just on the few things that I've read that there's a problem? Would you all agree with that? Well, where do we get our answer? We're going to go to the Bible. And we're going to see if the Bible does teach preservation. But I want to deal with an argument before we get into the Word of God. Uh, while I was at this meeting this week, I had someone come up to me and say, do you have any extra biblical sources to defend what you're talking about? <laughs> I always have to laugh when somebody asks that because the implication of the question is, okay, I know the Bible says that, but do you have something documented? Do you have something that's based on scholarship? I know, okay, the Bible says that, but do you have something real? You understand that's what's behind those words, right? Now, if it's a pagan, I can understand that. Amen? Pagans, they don't know any better. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God in them. They don't care if it's Archie and Jughead or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't care. Amen? That was a comic strip, okay? <laughs> they don't care. But don't you think that believers ought to put more confidence in this? than they do in scholarship. Now, again, if you're a guest, here's what happens. People who have our position are called stupid, ignorant, uneducated, tea party. No, that's a different discussion. Um, that, that's what we're called. Anti-intellectual, anti-research. Billy Sunday said that if the Bible says one thing and scholarship says another, scholarship can go straight to hell. That's what Billy Sunday said, but he was a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I don't use language like that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how far the Scriptures have fallen in people's estimation of value. Isn't that interesting? You see, that's where our study is going to be a little bit different. We actually begin with the Bible because we do believe that it is God's inspired and preserved word and that the mind of God has been revealed to man through black words on a white page. We believe that. Now, 
Having said that, if you walk into my two offices over here, I had to take my wife's and kick her to the other end of the building. It's because I have thousands of books. And I'm not this, I don't mind being arrogant, but I'm not being arrogant right here. Um, I've read a lot of them, okay? This is a studied position. I've spent 30 years studying this subject. Um, and I, I could take you and show you. This, this is not an ignorant position. But if nothing in there agreed, this is still true. Amen? Amen? So let's begin here. What does God say about His Word? Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. And we're going to fly through this now. Psalm 12 and verse 6. And if you've been here at Grace Baptist Church for any length of time, you know that this is the foundational passage for preservation. Which means that it has to be changed in all the modern Bibles. Because they do not believe in preservation. And honestly, they intentionally diminish it because they reject preservation. If you read any book on textual criticism, which I'm sure you're going to run out and do, but if you ever do read a book on textual criticism, I don't know of one that teaches preservation. Okay? Psalm 12, and look at verse 6. For the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, of course, when people do not believe in preservation, what they say is that verse 7 refers to Israel. But when you look at that pronoun, the, the, the rule is always the nearest noun. And so that is speaking of the words. Okay, God shall preserve them forever. This is speaking, this passage is speaking of preservation. Now, let me ask you a question. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, we've just read scholars that tell us that the Bible nowhere mentions preservation. Maybe we ought to get them a King James Bible. And they would see that. Okay? Uh, look at Proverbs 22.12. Proverbs 22.12. What does the Bible teach? And I hope that you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't, there's Bibles in the pew. I hope that you'll get it. Look at it. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and He overthroweth the words of the transgressor. Now, according to the Word of God, where is knowledge found? In the Word of God. God preserves that. God preserves that. And I, I like it that He's going to overthrow. If you look at the, next, the, last, half, the last half, um, he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. That's why the modern Bibles have to keep coming out with new Bibles. Because they don't last. There has to be a new one over and over and over again. Look at Psalm 146.5. Psalm 146.5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, sea and all that therein is, which keepeth 
truth forever, which keepeth truth forever. Now, that word truth, what, how do we understand what the truth is in the Word of God? Jesus Christ gave us the definition, didn't He? John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So He's saying that He is going to keep truth forever. He keepeth. That's a continual action. All right? Look at uh, Psalm 100, verse 5. So we know that He's going to preserve His word. We've already disproved those um, scholars. Psalm 100, verse 5. Now we'll see if His Word is enduring. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. It is enduring. It's enduring truth. Psalm 117, verse 2. We might as well read the whole chapter. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. But preservation is not taught in the Bible. Now, I need to take a couple of deep breaths. I don't want to be sarcastic through this whole thing. It, it, it just becomes very difficult to deal with um, what words can we use to describe those kinds of statements. Blasphemous? Yeah. Certainly untruthful. Certainly untruthful statements. And so you see why people who go to Bible colleges and seminaries struggle with this concept of preservation. Because from day one, they're taught that there is no such thing as preservation. Um, look with me at... Let's go to uh, verse uh, Psalm 119, 160. We already looked there. Go to Isaiah 40. In verse 8, this is my life's verse. I told you last week, I chose it when I was in fourth grade. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, if that's not preservation, I don't know what is. You see, now what these people will say, well, that the word preservation isn't there. Well, do you believe in the Trinity? Well, yes, of course we do. Um, do we believe in the incarnation? See, these are words that we use to describe teachings that aren't necessarily, the word isn't necessarily found in the Scripture, but that word describes what our belief is. And, of course, the word preserve is in the Bible if you actually take it for what it says. Uh, look at Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Amen? Now, what I have had, when I have shown that to people, they say, yeah, God's word is settled in heaven. We just don't have it here on earth. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That's what Jesus said. Unless you have a modern Bible to take by every word of God out. We saw that last week. Um, look with me. At Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
So his word is not to be destroyed. Jesus Christ didn't destroy it. He fulfilled it, and he's going to keep it, has promised to keep it. Look at verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You all believe that? That's right. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever studied the jot and tittle in Hebrew? Have you ever studied that? You have to be trained. Someone has to show you how to see a difference. That's how precise God said His preservation of the Word of God would be. So then how can there be entire chunks of Scripture? The last 12 verses of the book of Mark, according to scholars, are not supposed to be in your Bible. 12 entire verses in one section are not supposed to be. Is that larger than a jot or tittle? Then how was the Word of God corrupted so badly? It wasn't. God has preserved His Word. We just have to trust Him. Man cannot destroy His Word. The Word of the Lord has been tried. It's true. Look at Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. What does the Bible itself say about preservation? As for God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. It's tried. And it is true. It is true. From the beginning to the middle to the end, God says not to add to or take from His Word. Uh, I want you to see something. This is, a, this is an important concept. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, when we read words like this law, you might think that it's just speaking of the Ten Commandments. We're going to see in a minute that, that our understanding of the law as being the Ten Commandments is very flawed. Um, but Jesus Christ describes the law as the Word of God. All right, that's the way Christ describes it. So now look at verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye, what does it say there? Diminish aught from it. Now that is something, when you hear the modern translations, when you hear the people who defend the modern translations say, that no doctrine has changed in these Bibles. We saw last week that that's not true. But over and over again, apart from that, over and over again, we've seen the truth is diminished. If you take the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, and reduce that to Jesus, has it been diminished? Is He the Lord? Is He the Christ? Is He Jesus? But the Lord Jesus Christ is different than the name Jesus. The name Jesus is wonderful. It's precious to us. But those titles identify who He is. He's God and He's the Jewish Messiah. So by removing that, and that happens, oh, I think, more than a more than hundred times in the modern translations, that is a diminishing of the Word of God. And the Bible tells you not to do it. Don't do it. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 13, or 12, 32. Deuteronomy 12, 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So can I ask you a question? Diminishing from it. How many of you would say that 6,996 less words is diminishing? If it was right in the first place. Regardless of your position, 
7,000 less words is diminishing. Now, do you see that that's violating Scripture? But only, this, this is only important if you're going to study the words. It's only important if you're going to study the words, all right? Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6. You know, those of us of a conservative mindset politically, legally, and then when you add to that our Christian faith, how many of you have a hard time comprehending what Joe Paterno did? Right? It's just... Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Joe Paterno had anything to do with personally hurting those children. But did the hurting of children continue because of the leadership at Penn State, based on what we know? Yes. We, we can't comprehend that. Killing a baby. You know, when you consider what's done, I, I heard, I think it was Dave Spicer, who said that um, a good way to perform the death penalty would be to stab some scissors in the back of the man's head and put a hose and suck his brain out. That's what's done in late-term abortions. That's how they're done. And so those of us who who have a clear understanding of right and wrong, um, a, a functioning moral compass... To us, when we hear that they'll partially deliver a baby, stab it in the back of the head while it's still alive, and suck the brains out. And I'm sorry, children, I know that's a disturbing thought. Those of us who have a moral compass understand that that, that is wrong. That that's, a, that's a wrong thing. And yet... In Christianity, our moral compass has been so diminished that changing God's Word is okay. You see, I don't have time today to read you every passage in the Bible where God says, don't change it. Where God has said, keep it. Where God has said that He was going to keep it and preserve it. We can't read every passage of the Bible that says that. Well, then how can these scholars so cavalierly change God's Word? Do you know why there are Republicans that can vote and say, I'm personally pro-life, but I am publicly pro-choice? Do you know why they can say that? I'll quote the Catholic Chesterton again. He said, a moderate is one who believes in nothing. You see, because they they believe that they can have an opinion, but that opinion doesn't go so far as to save the child's life. Right? And so what happens with these scholars is they, they make a position, they make a statement, yes, I believe that God inspired His Word in the original autographs. Do you know what that's saying? I believe in nothing. Because there are no autographs. The originals are all gone. They do not exist in the world anywhere. So what they're saying is they're making a statement that is perceived to be a strong and firm statement by saying that I believe in nothing. 
Now, we believe that God did inspire His Word in the original autographs, and then He preserved it. Okay, so now let's go on. Uh, We could read some more verses on that, but I want you to see something. How has God preserved His Word? How has God preserved His Word? Do you know the Bible tells us how He has preserved His Word? It gives us examples of it. Go with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. For you teachers and administrators that are here, I know that that Penn State thing must have been unbelievably appalling to you because you know what you are instructed to do. And just as a, just as a, a human being, what our response is supposed to be. Amen? We know, and I'm thankful for the godly teachers and administrators that God's brought to us um, to protect our children. Um, look with me at uh, Exodus. Let's start reading in verse 19 and verse 20, or verse, chapter 19, verse 20. And the Lord came down upon, upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So now we know what happened. God's called Moses to the top of the mountain, and he's going to give him the law. Is that right? And so what we, what we have then is we have the introduction of what is known as the Ten Commandments. So look at chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he gives what is known as the Ten Commandments. And the only problem is, there's a lot more than ten. You know, that picture that we see of these tablets of stone with two tablets, and you have half of them on one side and half on the other, that's the commandments. But you have to read ten more chapters in your Bible to complete the commandments. Are you following me here? All right, so... Sometimes we have a false perception of what the Bible is. Now go to chapter 31 and verse 18. And let's get an understanding of how God gave the law. Chapter 31 and look at verse 18. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, Written with, what's it say? The finger of God. So God spoke the word to Moses and God actually wrote it with his finger. He wasn't dictating in Moses' writing. Y'all see that? Okay. Now, look with me at chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And so Aaron melts down the earrings, they make the the golden calf, and these people are dancing naked around a golden calf. It doesn't take long for people, when they remove from God and His Word, to devolve to debauchery. Um, I'll give you an example. We went to, Dalton Robertson and I were in New York City. We're walking by, I think, Columbia Circle, I think. 
And we saw this church. It was called Judson Memorial Baptist Church. Remember the great missionary, Adoniram Judson. And so we went to the church, and they gave me a history of the church. I've got it in my office. And they had an advertisement for a drama that they were having. Come to this drama. We'll provide free beer and nudity. So when, when you think that this kind of thing is only in the Old Testament, that this, is, this happened two years ago, okay, at Judson Memorial Baptist Church. And uh, I'm gonna, I need to get it from him. Dalton Robertson wrote the pastor a letter. And uh, so he has an interaction between he, he and the, the, the woman pastor of that church. Um, so you see that they've removed into debauchery very quickly. Look, look at verse 16. Verse, verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. The two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other side they were written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. Now, if there was ever an inspired original, this is it. Amen? It is. Look at verse 19. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. So this original was only seen by God and Moses, and it was destroyed. And God spoke from heaven and said, Moses, that was my only copy. Angels, come around quick. Help me remember what I said. Is that what happened? No. No. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, You thee, two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. I love that. <laughs> That's the way Laura talks to me. Um, so what do we have? We have the original, inspired, written with the finger of God, law of God. No one's ever seen the original. Do we still have the Word of God? You know why? The author has a good memory. Right? See, what, we've, what, what has happened is humanistic thinking has gotten into our colleges, seminaries, footnotes in our Bibles and the footnotes of our Bibles. Um, you see, what has happened is we have to start basing things on evidence rather than what God said. So what happens is we deal with the Word of God the same way that we would deal with the writings of Julius Caesar or the writings of Homer. The, the understand, that's what textual criticism does. It deals with the Word of God exactly the way that it would the writings of man. God never promised to preserve the Iliad or the Odyssey. He never promised to preserve that, but He did promise to keep His words. That's right. And He has no problem keeping His words. For the next 2,000 years, the lives of people depended on their obedience to that law, and they had never seen the original. The copy was God's Word just as sure as the original was God's Word. Why? 
Why? Because the God who inspired the original was certainly able to inspire a copy after the original had been destroyed. And this is exactly what he's been doing ever since. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture was given by inspiration of God and was profitable for doctrine. Is. Is. You copy Scripture, it's still Scripture. Amen? All right. Now, look at Jeremiah chapter 36. So, So here we have an original that's been destroyed, and God calls the copy His Word and held people accountable for the copy. Look at uh, Jeremiah. This is pretty interesting. This is just like the Jesus seminar. Jeremiah chapter 36, and look at verse 20. And they went in to the king, into the court. Uh, You know what? Let's go to uh, chapter 36, verse 1 for the context. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book. So that'd be, we would look, we would picture that as a scroll. Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. So he tells Jeremiah, write. The, the, the book of Jeremiah, all right? So now, go to verse 20. And they went in to the king, into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent to Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. Now can you picture? He's reading portions of the Bible, having these portions read to him, and he doesn't like those portions. So he cuts them out and throws them in the fire. Does that look like what we saw last week? But here's what happens when you start doing that. Look at what the look at the verse continues to say. So he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. The entire book of Jeremiah that God had revealed up to that point is thrown into the fire. I'm, what are you reading? Didn't burn your hands? No trouble there. What are you reading? It must be a copy. Is that right? Uh, now, how, how did God accomplish that? Look at verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll. And the words which Baruch wrote at the month of Jeremiah saying, or at the mouth of Jeremiah saying, Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll. Now, now, how, did, how would he do that? Jesus told us how the disciples would do that later on. He'll bring to remembrance 
all things. Is that right? Okay, so he does that. And thou shalt say, verse 29, And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. What does God call changing the word of God? Do you think God cares about how people handle his word? Isn't that interesting? All right. Then look at verse 32. Then took Jeremiah another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire. Now look at what it says here. And there were added besides unto them many like words. Do you know what those many like words are? Chapters 37 through 51 of Jeremiah. You've got them here. Aren't you glad that God preserved those words for you? Amen. But he didn't preserve the original. Do you know what happened to the original? Go to chapter 51. Look at verse 59. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of uh, Maasiah, when he went with Zedekiah. Those are a lot of ayahs. The king of Judah into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And this Sariah was a quiet prince. I don't, I don't know what that means, but it's kind of interesting. John Wayne had a fight scene in a movie like that. Remember the quiet man? All right, so verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words. See what it says? Even all these words. What words? The words that you're reading right now that are written against Babylon. Verse 61, And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see, and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. Where's the original? It's at the bottom of the Euphrates River. So what are you reading? A copy. You're reading a copy, an inspired copy. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Want to see something amazing? Go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Revelation 16, 12. I'll show you what God thinks about His Word. Revelation 16, 12. That prophecy of the destruction of Babylon has never been completely fulfilled. It will be. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, 
that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Prepared for what? Look at verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. When these kings come to fight against Israel, when they come to destroy Israel, they're going to have to walk over the words of God to get to their destruction. You know what the Bible says? That unbelievers stumble over the Word of God because of their unbelief. God has put the Word of God before us to keep us from falling. And God ordained 3,000 years ago, 2,700 years ago, that when the nations come to destroy Israel and He defeats them at the Battle of Armageddon, they're going to have to walk over His Word to do it. He's told them, I'm going to destroy Babylon. If you want to be a part of Babylon, you're going to be destroyed. How do we know that? He wrote it in a book. And then he preserved it. He preserved it. What do the manuscripts say? I don't have time to get into it, but if we went through all the different kinds of manuscripts, whether they're Greek manuscripts, whether they're Coptic manuscripts, whether they're Ethiopic manuscripts, it doesn't matter if we're looking at the Old Latin. It doesn't matter if we're looking at Armenian. It doesn't matter if we're looking at Syriac or Aramaic. It doesn't matter if we're looking at the writings of the church fathers. All of the manuscript evidence leads to the text that agrees with our King James Bible and from which it was translated. Why? Because God promised to preserve His Word. And He did. He has promised to preserve His Word. Where did God promise to keep His truth? Where is He going to keep it? Well, we know it's not the seminaries. We've demonstrated that already. Is that right? Where is He going to keep it? First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14. 1 Timothy 3.14 These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He was going to preserve his word in the churches. Godly people who love his word, who would make copies of it and give it to other people as they preach the gospel. Because you can't be a Baptist without a Bible. Amen? You can't be a Bible-believing Christian without a Bible. And God preserved His people. Have the gates of hell prevailed against the church? Jesus Christ said the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. That's what He said. I believe what He has said. If the gates of hell prevailed against the church, then they wouldn't have had the Bible. Believers, have the Word of God. He has preserved it. He promised, and He has kept His promise. Let's get a final word from Jesus Christ on this. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 5. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Can I ask you a question? Is the doctrine of preservation taught in the Bible? Is it? It is. It is. God inspired His Word. He has preserved His Word. And godly men have accurately translated it into a book that you can hold in your hands and that you can trust. Such a wonderful thing. Do you know what we know for sure? 
that God's Word is true from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, so much for your Word. It tells us how to have life.